0: Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is about how to search inside yourself in order to change the world with Rich Fernandez. Rich is the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, known as SILI, a nonprofit organization developed at Google that now offers Google's mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs to communities and organizations all over the world. He was also previously the director of executive education and people development at Google, where he was one of the first Search Inside Yourself teachers. Rich previously founded Wisdom Labs and has also served in senior roles at eBay, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America. He also received his PhD in psychology from Columbia University and is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. So thank you so much for joining us today, Rich. I'm really excited to have you.
1: Thank you so much, Jasmine. I'm very happy to be here. So, Rich, can you tell
0: us what does it mean to search inside yourself?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, first, you know, this this idea of search inside yourself is kind of a, a kind of a goofy Uh, title for a curriculum and an institute. And the reason it's goofy is because it actually started at Google, as you mentioned. And um, essentially, it was a curriculum we developed for leaders and managers at Google when they realized that they had to work with other human beings. (laughs) Um, Some of them didn't realize that. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, in trying to do some of the audacious and innovative things that were happening at Google, it was absolutely necessary to develop the emotional literacy, emotional intelligence, um, and even people and influence skills that allow that type of innovation and that type of scale to happen effectively. Um, Because you have to work as a team, and there is no I in team when you spell it, right, it's a it's a group of people who are working together. And so this curriculum really uh, looked at some of the core factors that could help people grow their emotional intelligence. And so we called it search as in search, like Google search, but inside yourself, because this is a set of skills that each one of us can develop. Each one of us has the capacity to develop um, because they really have to do with Uh, developing mental habits and practices to help you navigate complexity personally, but also to work effectively with others.
0: And Rich, how do you measure the success of Search Inside Yourself? So I guess, you know, my my question is um, for folks who might have like nuanced uh, developments of emotional awareness, how does that translate into a group setting at work? And you know, I think that we can agree that, of course, people are happier, but does that make them more productive? Like, what's sort of the data around um, this program and the benefits?
1: Yeah. Well, we don't measure happiness. Um, We measure emotional intelligence. Uh, And so uh, the way we do that is we look at the core dimensions of emotional intelligence, things like self-awareness, self-management, social awareness and effective relationship management. And we uh, ask people pre and post uh, curriculum, what their levels of each of those are on a variety of um, dimensions. So again, if we talk about relationship management, the ability to deal with conflict, the ability to communicate effectively, the ability to have influence and many other dimensions. So we ask them about all of those things before and after the program, about 30 days after. And we also have some studies that go six months after the program. And if they're using the mental habits and skills that we have um, shared with them in the programming, um, they often report um, oftentimes double digit improvements in things like communication, collaboration, relationship management, social awareness. And then on the personal front, in terms of their own awareness of themselves, their ability to manage stress, well-being, and also to um, navigate conflict. So uh, it's survey research. And then another level of measurement we have is then beyond the individual, what is the impact on something like an organization? So we have studies that look at that as well. For example, in one of our largest clients, which is a um, German multinational software enterprise software company, that's SAP. Uh, which is well-known. Um, I think it operates in uh, over 150 countries. Um, we know that over a six-month period, when people are practicing these emotional intelligence skills, they see the double-digit increases in communication, collaboration, innovation, the decreases in stress, the increases in well-being. And then SAP has been able to translate those numerical shifts into actual ROI, return on investment, in terms of operating mm. profit, So like when your workforce is is healthier and more focused and more engaged and has better collaboration, it actually translates to, for example, higher operating profit. So SAP has been able to quantify that as well. So those are some of the ways that we link the outcomes of these skill development. Uh, things that I'm talking about to individual and organizational outcomes.
0: Great. And I think one thing I keep hearing over and over again is I think a lot of people confuse intellectual uh, capacity with self-awareness and emotional regulation. Yes. And it's so not the case at all. <laughs> so no, I, I no. just love that you guys are are doing this work, which I think uh, modern culture has largely ignored for a long time.
1: So Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And so, Rich, you gave a talk at the United Nations about the topic of mindfulness and emotional awareness. Can you share more about this talk and uh, why why w- was it so important?
1: Yeah. So I was invited to the United Nations headquarters in New York to talk about um, the role of emotional intelligence in the future of work. And, um, you know, we hear a lot, uh, uh, as we should be about the role of artificial intelligence, automation, um, and all of these new innovations that are coming into the workplace that will have serious implications for the future of work and how we do work. But what they wanted to know was, is there a role? What is the role of something like emotional intelligence in that changing landscape? And a lot of the research actually points to the fact that just as the need for AI and automation and machine learning is increasing, so will the need for emotional intelligence. And that's because at some level, people are orchestrating a lot of these innovations and applying these innovations um, to work and and for the impact in the world. And so being able to understand and be aware of um, your intentions, your relationships, your own reactions and biases as regards these technologies is even more important than ever. So that in fact, the World Economic Forum points to emotional intelligence as one of the top five skills for the future of work. Uh, In 2025, alongside AI automation, you know, data analytics, machine learning and all of the usual suspects um, that are more technologically oriented. I guess what I would say, Yasmin, is that just as we are continuing to scale and innovate our technological prowess, we also need to equally ramp our human centric skills.
0: Mm, yeah wow and I think what's what I've noticed my observation is that um, people's sort of mental health uh, there's like an opportunity cost to, to folks mental health if we continue to advance technology without um, you know incorporating and implementing the the human side of the equation which is this emotional emotional and um, you know awareness. And mindfulness, so uh, really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, look, look, we don't—we're not designed to operate on a machine scale or a machine's velocity. So we need to calibrate that human uh, sort of machine um, relationship. The best analogy would be like if you designed a Formula One car that was so fast, but <laughs> you wouldn't be able to drive it. And so how do you actually design a car that can go fast, a Formula One car that can go fast, but that also allows you to very finely steer it as a driver? And that is sort of the kind of relationship we're in now. And it really does have to do with our emotional health and mental health, as well as things like our focus and our ability to have mental clarity and emotional balance in the midst of all the ever-increasing demands that are accelerated as technology grows. So these are both parallel developments that need equal attention.
0: Right. And Rich, can you tell us a little bit more about the actual work, uh, with Search Inside Yourself and, you know, which countries and organizations you've worked with? Like, how does the, the whole process work?
1: Yeah. So we um, operate in over 50 countries around the world. We've worked with um, large organizations, mid to large sized organizations, businesses. We've worked with whole governments. Um, we've worked with nonprofit leadership institutes and entities, universities, healthcare systems. So we're really sector diverse. The way the process works is that we have certain core Uh, offerings um, that have to do with developing emotional intelligence and mindfulness skills um, in certain contexts, for example, in the context of leadership, in the context of teams, in the context of building personal resilience. And um, we teach all of these different modular approaches, uh, both in person or online. And typically when we work with an organization, we'll run a pilot and measure the impact If the impact is good, then usually in partnership with the organization, uh, we will then um, think about a broader rollout. And then, you know, if it makes sense, if the organization really wants to embed these skills, um, what they will often do is have um, people participate in our organizational teacher training, which is a sort of train-the-trainer approach, where then we train and certify employees of an organization. Or members of an organization or a community to be able to teach these skills themselves to their own population. So let me, and then we measure the results. Of course, let me give you a really concrete example. Um, uh, we got a contract with the nation of Bhutan, small Himalayan country, um, that wanted to learn about neuroscience and secular approaches to mindfulness and emotional intelligence. Uh, and wanted our unique curriculum because it came out of Google. So they were thinking about the next generation of innovators and how they can use these skills. And so what they wanted us to do is train all of the school teachers in the nation, which we did. And we did that through training trainers. So we took 150 of their best school teachers who wanted to be trainers and certified them over the course of a year uh, in our curriculum and in our processes. And then they taught the rest of their peers to the point where now they've trained all 10,000 school teachers in the nation. So that's one example. And then a more business-centric example is uh, one of our largest clients, as I mentioned, is SAP. Uh, We have over 70 certified trainers who are employees of SAP, who every week teach a Search Inside Yourself offering to their fellow employees. And so we've been able to scale within that organization and measure the longer term impacts by offering this kind of train-to-trainer methodology. And then if anyone's interested, since this is actually timely, at the end of April, we're closing our next cohort. But right now it's open. We do have openings in our organizational teacher certification program, which you can find on our website, which I'm happy to share later. Wonderful, yeah.
0: I think uh, one question that uh, comes up with this process is the um, the kind of embedded model. So once yeah. this is uh, shared with folks internally, um, You know, how do you ensure like a longer lasting effect or do you do you keep track of that or is that kind of like based on a company's decision?
1: Uh, It's partially based on a company's decision and partially based on the momentum that we sustain. So we offer monthly meets um, where we can review some of the core skills and then some of the we enable the employee trainers to hold their own, for example, weekly sessions or topical sessions using the curriculum. And we furnish them with all the tools and resources so that they can keep the learning kind of continuous and sustained beyond the initial kind of um, experiences. Um, So there's workshops, there's kind of like ongoing practice sessions, um, mindfulness and emotional intelligence challenges that they get every day. And then there's these kind of group format settings that is more informal learning that happen weekly and monthly and throughout the course of the year. So we provide that full architecture to our trained trainers. And that's one way we ensure it kind of carries on. Of course, it all needs organizational sponsorship, right? So if there's like a senior leader at some point who says, you know, enough of this, you know, people are kind of gathering for 15 or 20 minutes to, you know, exercise these skills, but they really should be at work instead. But I think in this day and age, I think a lot of leaders and managers, the best ones at least understand that, you know, people can't give what they don't have. So they need to develop these emotional intelligence, mindfulness, resilience skills in order to be focused and engaged, especially in difficult times like these.
0: Rich, have you found any kind of like themes or uh, trends, um, by doing this work in countries and organizations that you think has come up time and time again. Um, you know, have you noticed, for example, people in, in the East, uh, who already have a a mindfulness practice, how is that different from companies in the West? Yeah. I'm just super curious, like how that, how the trends have played out.
1: Yeah. It's a great question, Yasmeen, especially from the cultural perspective. Um, you know, in the East, there is, um, they have their own traditions, Um, around some of this stuff um, that are a lot tied to kind of more traditional cultural aspects like meditation and so forth. Um, And so sometimes we actually find that in the East, in Asia in particular, um, there's sometimes sort of a pre-existing idea of what what we're teaching might be. And that's um, important to kind of unwind because we take a very secular and science-based approach to these practices. In other words, we look at brain function and neuroscience and the neuroscience research to inform the practices. Um, So the point of departure is science, not any other kind of like, you know, uh, other type of orientation, perhaps a spiritual one or philosophical or esoteric one. It is much more based on um, brain function and optimal brain function and how you can then, um, you know, use that and build the habits can lead to emotional intelligence. And sometimes that has been called mindfulness, and that's fine with me. I like to call them useful mental habits um, that are based on neuroscience. So that's one difference, East-West. And then, you know, we have had some questions, and I know a lot of your uh, listeners are in the Middle East. We've had some questions in the Middle East about whether, in fact, we are secular and science-based. And the answer is, yes, we are. And we've taught um, in numerous places in the Middle East. And, for example, we had an extensive Um, engagement with the Mohammed bin Rashid Center for Leadership Development in the UAE. And there, it was really interesting because there was a real understanding that these skills are kind of the next generation sort of power skills, Um, the ability to be emotionally intelligent, to exercise empathy and compassion. Those are the future proof skills that leaders will need to be able to drive the innovations and so forth. And it wasn't at all a conflict culturally or religiously with anyone um, who attended these programs, because they saw that we really did key on the neuroscience aspects of it, and then the practical aspects of how this applies to leadership. And we don't talk about and we don't really at, at all sort of, you know, address any of those other dimensions that sometimes were, are you know, asked about, uh, especially again, In the Eastern context, where there's longstanding traditions. But we stick much more to, we stick pretty exclusively to the science um, and to the practical application.
0: And uh, Rich, have you found that there are maybe some levels of resistance uh, to this work in certain circles um, and demographics, or has it largely been kind of uh, the same?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, look, the truth be told, science is powerful, but you can also critique science, right? Um, It only allows us to know what we know based on what we choose to study. And there's a lot that gets left out of that, right? I mean, Hmm. um, and so when we don't know what we don't know, we can't claim that we have a full map of like optimal brain function, for example. And so we have to be very careful. And people, I think, rightly have said you know, are you overreaching here? Um, are you saying that people can develop things like awareness and, um, their attention and their focus and their emotional intelligence? Um, and they're complete because of that. Um, and the answer is no, they're not complete because of that. Um, and we don't claim that, you know, we do know that we're talking about perhaps like a, a very specific set of skills, that nonetheless are very important, but there's much more that goes into human flourishing and well-being than what we teach. Um, But we do teach, uh, you know, a very specific set of skills that we do think support flourishing and well-being as well.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I'm also um, wondering when you go into companies and organizations, I imagine that, you know, there are some people that might already have a practice of meditation and mindfulness and others that don't. So do you, do you kind of separate people into different groups or is um, is the curriculum um, based on just, um, you know, kind of teaching people at the same speed?
1: Yeah, no, we teach, we teach it all in a very practical and accessible way so that um, no matter what you will have a, an experience. Um, that I think that will be beneficial whether you're an advanced practitioner or a complete novice and don't even know what the term mindfulness, meditation, emotional intelligence, what all of those mean, you know, there's something sort of for everyone. Um, And the point really is to make it practical and accessible so that you can use it in your life and in your work. And so that's also a key difference, right? Um, For example, advanced, let's say, meditation practitioners um, really learn about the skills and the art of meditation. but in their, let's say they go to a course or, you know, um, a, a sitting or a retreat, um, the instruction might not be that about then how to apply that in a situation where you have a conflict at work with competing agendas. We very explicitly say these skills, here's how to develop these skills, and now here's to apply th- how to apply them when you have a conflict when you have a disagreement, when you have to have a difficult conversation. And we actually spend time on a method for applying them to those situations. So again, very real life applied version of mindfulness and emotional intelligence.
0: Uh, that's really interesting and I think incredibly helpful and, and important right now. And Rich, you spoke about how you use a lot of neuroscience to kind of back up um, a lot of the work that you guys do. Are there any... Yeah. Yeah. Are there any specific uh, papers or um, kind of modes of study within neuroscience that you spend a lot of time, uh, you know, on when you're building your curriculum? Like what sort of aspect of neuroscience uh, is connected to mindfulness? And and what would you tell folks who want to learn more about that connection?
1: Yeah, great uh, question. And it's a huge topic. But what I'll say is this, we focus a lot on uh, an aspect of neuroscience that is called contemplative neuroscience, meaning the impact that different types of reflection and contemplation practices have on your neuroanatomy. And so what that means, maybe the English translation of that, is that our brain, it consists of a variety of neural networks, a vast um, amount of neural networks that each serve different functions. Some of them Are exist to allow us to kind of scan and daydream and be creative. And some of them exist, for example, to be focused and and task positive, as they say, and um, really kind of honed in um, and with our attention, sharpening our attention, our mental clarity. And so you can actually activate each of those different neural networks through a different set of practices and mental habits. And those are what we focus on. What the research tells us, for example, if I can just give you like a really specific example, you can actually train your focus. You can train yourself to be less distracted, in other words. And that we know from neuroscience, that when you do a certain set of um, mental training, mental habits that are keyed on attention, things like focusing on a single object of attention, let's say focusing on your breath for five minutes, that actually activates the focus networks in your brain, what's called the direct attention network. Uh, And um, strengthens the functioning of that network, not only the neurons themselves and the electrical signals that go across them, but actually helps grow those cells themselves. So the analogy would be like going to the gym, Yasmin, right? If you did a bicep curl on a regular basis a few times a week, you would strengthen the muscles associated with the bicep. Electrical signals would go across those muscles, activating them, and they would grow in size and strength. So similarly, you can do the same with neural networks in the brain through certain specific mental exercises that have to do a lot with mindfulness, but let's call them more broadly a set of useful mental habits that improve your both cognitive function as well as your emotional intelligence. Now, this is one of the places, though, I do have to say to your earlier question, this is not a cure-all. This is not a magic bullet. This is not going to increase your IQ by double digits necessarily. But it can enhance things like focus. It can enhance things like perception and awareness of yourself, of your emotional states, of your stress management um, practices. And it can also enhance your ability to be aware of others and effectively manage those relationships. So I don't want to overreach here, but the neuroscience definitely points to the fact that you can activate these neural networks that can really be beneficial broadly.
0: Wow. I want to take this uh, this curriculum, this class, and but I imagine this is only for organizations or do you guys have plans to offer this to individuals at some point?
1: Oh, yeah. No, we offer it to both. We offer it publicly to individuals. Anyone can register for an upcoming program. Just go to our website, look look under for individuals, programs. So we offer, before the pandemic, you know, we were offering like these in like hundreds of cities around the world in every continent, pretty much. Um, And now we do it online primarily, and we'll go back to in-person as well as online. So those are open to the public. So you just need to go to our website and register. And then organizations separately, they bring those in for their employees. So we work with both individuals and organizations. Yeah.
0: Great. Rich, I want to kind of understand why you decided to join uh, Search Inside Yourself as a CEO after working at Google and after founding um, Wisdom Labs. Can you talk us through that decision?
1: Oh, yeah. It was really clear and and, um, surprisingly easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I left Google because I loved my job. And at the same time, I really wanted to devote myself full time to this set of activities, which was to really helping enhance mindfulness and emotional intelligence skills um, broadly, uh, around the world. Uh, I didn't quite know how to do that. So I started my own company to do that, um, which went well and is going well. It's called wisdom labs. But at some point, um, I mentioned earlier that, um, search inside yourself. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but we got permission from Google about mm, 12 to 11 years ago to spin off search inside yourself as a separate nonprofit educational Institute. And, uh, at the time I didn't take the leadership role there cause I wanted to start this company, which I did, but a few years later, the board of search inside yourself approached me and said, listen, we have huge demand for these, um, for our offerings, people around the world seem really interested, but we have to find a way to meet that demand. And we need a leader who's interested in doing that. So are you interested in scaling, helping us scale mindfulness and emotional intelligence around the world? So they had me at the word scaling, <laughs> 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 scaling these skills. Uh, that is really why actually uh, I left Google is to do this work, as I mentioned, full time and to do, be able to do it full time and to do it at scale globally um, really was uh, utterly compelling to me. And that is still my why, if you will, my purpose today which is uh, to work with our beautiful global community of teachers, where we have over 800 certified teachers in over 50 countries around the world now, and to working with them as a community to scale these um, skills of mindfulness and emotional intelligence around the world. That was my reason for joining, and it's still my reason for being here today. <laughs> wow. And what happened to Wisdom Labs? it's still going. Uh, It's now primarily a digital learning company that focuses on workplace wellness. So it's doing nicely. Um, And I co-founded it with a dear friend of mine, Corey Smith, who is the CEO. And so he's taken care of that beautifully. So it gave me the opportunity to actually now step into this role as a nonprofit CEO.
0: Wow. Amazing. What are some uh, interesting stories from uh, people uh, within organizations um, who... Their lives have changed after doing the work with inside, uh, Search Inside Yourself. Can you share some maybe anecdotes um, with the audience?
1: Yeah, um, there's a few. So uh, we had a participant named uh, Joyce who works at Fitbit, and she talks about how the skills that she learned in SIY really helped her um, kind of manage the stress of a high-performance, you know, high-velocity organization and bring in some important sort of self-management skills around stress and emotion regulation and things like this and overall well-being. So personally, it was helpful. And then she said it's also helped her increase, for example, um, her ability to um, create an environment of innovation for her team, because it helps her understand and empathize with the needs and um, desires of others, which basically helps her increase psychological safety within the team. And as you may know, psychological safety is one of the top five skills of an effective team. That's from a Google study where they studied the most effective teams at Google. It's called Project Aristotle. You can always look it up. It's online, Project Aristotle at Google. And they found that one of the top five, the number one um, skill or attribute of an effective team was a sense of psychological safety where you could take risks, make big bets in the quest for innovation, fail, and still feel safe to continue the work rather than to be severely criticized and punished. And so these skills Joyce is describing at Fitbit, which incidentally of course got acquired by Google recently, um, really helped in her team environment and helped with collaboration and innovation. So that's one nice work example. Um, and then maybe a separate example is at SAP, uh, we talked, oh, no, maybe I'll talk about a different sector because I keep talking about technology. Procter and Gamble, we have um, a gentleman named Ralph Hack, who is one of our champions there. and he was inspired by the Search Inside Yourself program to create an employee wellness program called Improve Your Life. And and, uh, the SIY curriculum is a core part of that. But they also do a lot of things like peer group coaching and peer group meetings that really help improve employee wellness at Procter & Gamble, which, of course, is a manufactured goods company. And it's really helped them um, improve employee well-being for the participants, at least, of this Improve Your Life programming. Um, And so SIY was sort of the inspiration for that. So I think people take the tools that they learn and apply them in their work or community contexts, uh, to whatever effect. And let's go back to Bhutan as one last example. I met with the Minister of Education in Bhutan. And I said, with all due respect, Minister, why why do you need us to teach you (laughs) mindfulness and emotional intelligence (laughs) skills? Don't you have like an ancient, ancient uh, tradition of this? And he said, yes, we do. And it's beautiful. And this will supplement it. Because in our tradition, you have to go to a monastery on a mountaintop for hours at a time or days at a time. And in your curriculum, you don't talk about monasteries or mountaintops. You talk about 30 seconds to emotional intelligence when you're standing in front of a classroom or when you have a business meeting. And he said, that's what our school teachers need, because our next generation is having some difficulties transitioning from an agrarian society to, you know, more technology um, in their lives And so we need teachers that can really have emotional intelligence to help them make that kind of transition. And so please, please train, train us as teachers and we'll train our other teachers and we'll get it done. And so with that, I I said, absolutely. I'm happy to we're happy to help supplement um, and offer these these curriculum. And so that was another kind of, um, I think, society changing, I would say generational changing, um, initiative that we undertook.
0: Wow. That's so beautiful, Rich. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, there'll be more stories, uh, over the years, right? Because it's sort of a domino effect. Uh, once people have these practices, it influences other people in their network. And like you said, it's, it's a generational effect. So really beautiful. And how have things changed for you guys since the start of the pandemic?
1: Oh yeah, they've been big, you know. Yasmeen, I mean, because we originally we really approached all of this from um, offering these these trainings in person. Because we were we are big believers in the fact that like, you know, person-to-person connection is critical. But of course, and so all of our offerings were largely in person. And of course, when the pandemic hit, everything transitioned to online. So it was a forcing function for us to reinvent and our curriculum so that it can be delivered online which meant a lot of our curriculum is very very experiential and also very interactive we have people break into small groups we have people in pairs um, and we have a lot of group discussion so we had to design all of that into the online experience and it took us several months actually Um, where we didn't teach anything at all, but we just reinvented ourselves. And I'm happy to report here about a year later that now that we've been able to measure the impact of online versus in-person events, I'm happy to report that they're almost identical impact.
0: Wow. Um,
1: So that surprised us. Um, The in-person events still come out a little bit ahead, but only a little bit. And I also think it has to do with the fact that um, with the online offerings, First of all, it was meeting a need that was really present, which is the need for well-being and resilience and finding habits to help you with that. Um, And secondly, I think the online offering was able to reach people who otherwise wouldn't be able to come and attend an in-person experience in different parts of the world. So I know that that's the case because we've been doing much more in parts of the world where we probably would not have held an in-person training. Um, and so across Latin America, across Africa. So we're actually really happy now that we have a kind of a hybrid approach and can flex to either in person or online. That was a huge development for us.
0: Wow. Incredible. Um so happy to hear that there wasn't that big of a difference uh, between the two, because I think... I think a lot of people just assume that you have to be in person, but I think that it's, it's amazing what can actually be shared uh, through, through the computer and um, wow. So, so incredible. Rich, can you tell me why you think that this subject is so important right now?
1: Yeah. Well, I think we're in a moment where, um, you know, the world was already like this before, but it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Uh, That's actually a a set of terms that has been described as the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And people don't necessarily have the tools to deal with that level of VUCA, (laughs) volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And so um, I think that the good news about it is that everybody has the capacity to deal with it, But not everybody has the actual um, toolkit to activate that capacity. And why I think mindfulness and emotional intelligence and the things we offer are sort of more in demand than ever is because people are realizing they need to to find a way to have radical self-care. And that this is something that they can actually do for themselves if they can develop the skills And they turn to us and others to hone and develop those skills, which they, and again, they have the capacity and innate possibility within themselves. That's why we say search inside yourself. You'll find the tools you need. Here's just some guidelines to help you do that. And people are appreciative.
0: And Rich, what about the things that have surprised you the most in the tenure that you've been at Search Inside Yourself and uh, doing this work as a CEO?
1: Oh, yes. What surprised me most, which shouldn't have, because I, I've, I've always known this to be the case, but whenever I see it, it surprises me, is the innate compassion that people have for each other. Mm. The innate compassion people have for each other. Let me give you an example. We also ran a, um, a set of programming for the Los Angeles County um, Allied uh, Law Enforcement Services. Okay. So these are everyone from police. Uh, commanders to people who run jails to public defenders um, to prosecutors to judges to social workers who work with you know in juvenile hall so every side of the law enforcement equation right both people who are in the system and people who you know enforce the laws okay and so we would teach them these skills and talk about like and invite them to share some of the challenges they faced and how they can use these skills. We get them into groups, and we can get groups of people who are on completely different sides of the law, okay? Like a social worker who works with juvenile in juvenile hall, a prosecutor, a police commander, um, and a public defender, okay? (laughs) So we have a breakout group with someone like, and everybody realizes that everybody else is human and has this kind of innate humanity um, and that like, um, you know, like there's this expression that, you know, I think I heard somewhere like, be kind, everybody is carrying a a heavy load, Mm, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And, And I think there's this realization, wow, we're all just people. We're people playing these roles. We all have our own unique brand of suffering. We all have ways we're working on to do that. And when we share that with each other, like the seeing of each other's struggle and innate humanity, it generates this like level of compassion that is incredible to see. And it kind of melts away a lot of that other stuff where role or hierarchy or adversarial relationship kind of melts away a little bit. And what you see is this kind of common connection to the human, human to human and that is really at the core of what we do, honestly, Yasmeen. that is why we do what we do. That's our vision, that we can improve the world in this way by seeing each other's common humanity and by enabling uh, a sense of connection and compassion uh, amongst people. That ultimately is the fruits of the practice practices that we teach. Uh, and it surprises me every time I see it it shouldn't I know it's part of why we do what we do but it's such a beautiful thing to see emerge that it's truly truly moving
0: Wow yeah I think in our very busy lives we sometimes um, commoditize people and especially I think over zoom right and uh, over over video. Uh, it's really easy to dehumanize people. In the, in the words of uh, Adam Rosendahl actually wrote this article about um, how we tend to kind of dehumanize people who are just in the screen um, and also commoditize them, right? And so I think it's really beautiful that uh, that that form of connection and the humanizing aspect of your work is so powerful. Um, so great.
1: And yeah, Thank you. <laughs>
0: And Rich, what should we spend time thinking about in the years ahead? What do
1: you think is the future of work? Oh, that's a huge question. But um, (laughs) the first part of it is, um, you know, I would say is pay attention to the human centric skills, pay attention to the human centric skills. Those are skills and like all skills, you can develop them. They don't just happen right you can have a certain level of innate mindfulness awareness empathy compassion but you can also cultivate even higher levels of it and i don't think people realize that just like you could cultivate a muscle right or you can cultivate your body to be in a certain level of physical form you can also cultivate empathy mindfulness compassion um and so i think people need to pay attention to that to know that that's the case and to be intentional about building a practice and a community of practice with others so that you can support each other through difficult times like this i think that the only way in the future of work that we're going to be able to survive the increasing hyperconnectivity and velocity and automation is by in parallel and i mentioned this before developing our human centric skills so let's all pay attention to that and realize that we can actually move the needle on those and then do it for yourself do it for yourself
0: Amazing advice, Rich. This has been such a delight to talk to you. And um, I'd love for you to point folks to any resources that they can uh, go to, to learn more about you, learn more about Silly, search inside yourself. I always feel silly saying that word.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) By design. Yeah, (laughs) we try to keep it light because you know all this is all good, and it can sound very ponderous and heavy. It's not really. It's very freeing and light in the end, Uh, and so we yeah we like to call ourselves silly. Uh, yeah, so Yasmin, to that end, if anyone's interested in learning more, I would just say go to our website. It has everything you need there to connect with us, um, learn more about our work. So that's S-I-Y-L-I S-I-Y-L-I dot org which stands for Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. S-I-Y-L-I dot org. And yeah, please stay in touch and uh, we wish you well. We wish you Um, ongoing practice, whatever that means for you. And we're here to support you in that, on that journey. So thank you for listening. And Yasmin, thank you so much for inviting me here today. It's really been a delight.
0: Oh, likewise, Rich. It's been so wonderful and I learned a lot. So I'm sure folks will be navigating to that site. And I think a lot of companies, honestly, I think every company should sign up for this because it's not even, you know, I don't think it's an option anymore. I think it's, you know, mandatory for folks to do this work. Um, So thank you so much, Rich. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about how to search inside yourself in order to change the world with Rich Fernandez. And you could tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and
1: spirituality. Thanks again.